Well, welcome to the next edition of Business Law Focus. It's an absolute pleasure to have Audrey Johnson from ENS Africa's Employment Department with us today. Audrey, thanks for joining us. Great having you. Thanks so much. Pleasure to be here. Now, I wanted to start with the strike season. It seems to be ratcheting up every day. There's more strikes, more protests. Um, but let's just focus on the actual strikes that we're sitting with at the moment. Obviously, a big impact on the economy. Not a good time because we've had COVID knocking everything um, for a six as, as well. But um, the impact of strikes, and I think what we want to do is um, how do we get to resolving some of the existing strikes out there? Because they seem to be carrying on for longer and longer. Yes, uh, that certainly is the case. It, it certainly does seem to be a pattern where strikes are um, very, prote- very protracted. The um, impact on the economy, what might not be immediately obvious to a lot of people, is that it doesn't only last for the duration of the strike. Um, because obviously for as long as a strike is ongoing, the employees aren't receiving any remuneration because the principle of no work, no pay applies. These are often low-earning employees that have a huge amount of dependents that are reliant on their income. And for that entire period for which they are on strike, they're not earning any money. And all of this leads to a direct impact on consumer spending, which in turn affects our economic growth. So there is both the direct impact on our economy um, as a result of the strike while it lasts, but also that indirect impact that lasts for quite a while after a strike is resolved. And that's where it's particularly bad if a strike is protracted. In terms of how we get to a point where these strikes can be resolved um, quicker than is currently the case, it's a very tricky one because I think, um, in my experience, what is often very difficult is that the parties are so far apart. And often that's as a consequence of, on the one hand, the unions and the employees making very unreasonable demands that aren't taking into account economic realities and the financial position that many employers do find themselves in, particularly in light of the COVID pandemic. Um, But on the other hand, there are also employers that are not willing to compromise at all. And there are instances where some employers, probably few and far between, but it does happen, are using the COVID-19 pandemic as a convenient excuse for not being able to meet employees halfway and not being able to do things like pay bonuses or give increases. Um, Obviously, in in many instances, it's convenient for employers to just simply say they can't do that because of the COVID-19 pandemic. There are many employers for whom that really is the case. But I think what we're seeing is this huge gap in terms of employee demands and employer willingness to meet employees halfway and and meet some of those demands or compromise, which is uh, having an impact on how long these strikes are lasting and uh, a very difficult situation to resolve and and finalize those disputes so that employees can come back to work. Yeah, I saw recently, for instance, the Metro bus strike, which is just uh, carrying on indefinitely by the looks of the thing. I know they had to go to court uh, this week, but the demands are like 18% or so. Uh, I mean, what is reasonable when it comes to, in light of the zero or negative growth that we've got, uh, what is actually reasonable to uh, when it comes to salary demands? So that's quite a difficult question to answer because I think it does vary from industry to industry and from business to business. Um, And there are many businesses that have not been in a position to grant increases at all in light of the pandemic. And uh, employees have to be understanding and accepting of that and have to also understand that the reality is that at this stage, if you have a job, you are lucky. So 18%, I think, is quite high. Um, 
And there are also many employers where the employees are still on layoff, they're working reduced hours, or they're only receiving a percentage of their normal remuneration in terms of an agreed uh, layoff. So increases are often actually quite academic in that scenario because employees are often not earning their normal remuneration. Um, but as a general rule, I'd say that an increase of probably about 4, 5 to 6% is reasonable given that that will at least curb the effects of inflation um, for the employees. And of course, there's a, a broader reason why we need to negotiate and settle um, is the impact of labor has, you know, it's, it's myriad uh, effects across the economy that spirals across the economy. I mean, just one area would be the impact on foreign investment if you don't have stable labor relations. And, and that's a bigger, bigger issue. It's, it's a concerning issue. Um, so in light of that, um, what is the key message when it comes to negotiating settlements at the moment? Yes, I think that's absolutely right. I think um, any potential investor, one of the key factors that they look at uh, is how stable the labor relations environment is in the country. Um, and so I think the key message is that employers really need to look at the bigger picture. And, well, both unions and employers need to look at the bigger picture, look at the impact on the economy as a whole and on the business that is impacted by a protracted strike and try and do whatever is necessary to resolve these matters as soon as possible. Um, and having said that, there are many ways and avenues available to employers to try and resolve a strike. Um, and one of the things that is often overlooked is the use of a lockout, uh, which is basically um, an employer's version of a strike, where an employer is saying to employees, you've made demands of us, um, that we aren't in a position to meet and we're now going to make our own demand and we're going to actually exclude you from the workplace and lock you out and not allow you to return to work even if you want to abandon your strike and come back until you agree to meet our demand. And often that is a very useful tool that an employer can use to reach a resolution sooner than if employees were just permitted to strike indefinitely. Um, it obviously has to be strategized very carefully and executed in a very carefully considered manner. But I think there are very many avenues available to employers to try and reach a resolution with employees sooner rather than later. And all of those should actually be considered and advice should be taken and a strategy should be devised that will hopefully give rise to a strike ending sooner rather than later. Of course, um, we've heard about and a lot of people have suffered through uh, the impact of COVID, which is reduced salaries, uh, less work time, um, and obviously retrenchments looming large. Um, so just in light of that, is, this, is there a way uh, for employers to look at alternatives to those types of, um, you know, of solutions that they have been implementing? Seems short-termist. So unfortunately, there aren't that many alternatives. So, you know, the alternative to uh, layoff and reduced working time often is retrenchment. So that often is the position that an employer finds itself in, that that really is the only viable alternative if employees aren't going to agree to a layoff or to work-reduced hours. Um, there are some creative things that I've seen. So, for example, some employers um, that are uh, listed have implemented incentive schemes in terms of which employees agree to forego a percentage of their remuneration, and that amount is then invested in a long-term incentive scheme of some nature that uh, it's almost like a phantom share scheme, so that employees in due course, uh, they'll receive notional shares, and then in due course they will receive an amount equivalent to their actual share price. Um, 
so that that can be cashed in at a future date. And it helps employers at least to um, improve their cash flow position because employees are deferring their remuneration. So that's a, that's a creative way of potentially managing the cash flow position that employers find themselves in. Um, another potential is to look at the use of flexible contracts, um, zero-hour contracts, fixed-term contracts, and make sure that you are maximizing the flexibility that those sort of contracts provide um, and actually use and rely on the automatic termination provisions um, in fixed-term contracts to help sort of reduce your headcount if that's what you need to achieve without having to go through retrenchments. Um, but there are also risks associated with doing that, especially if fixed-term contracts have been rolled over and there is no proper reason for fixing the term of the contract. So even that must be carefully considered. And I'm afraid to say that in most instances, the alternative to reduced working time and layoff does ultimately land up being a retrenchment exercise of some sort. When we look at our retrenchment law, it's pretty broad, right? Um, an employer, um, from my understanding of it, is that... Um, you know, you don't necessarily have to be in dire financial straits uh, before you retrench. You can actually um, retrench purely uh, because you want to make more money, right? Uh, it's pretty broad. It is pretty broad. And our retrenchment law is actually quite well developed in that respect in that it does really try to balance the um, rights of employees and job security against an employer's right to earn a profit mm. and structure your business in a way that allows you to do that optimally. Um, so in a recent judgment, in fact, that came out of the constitutional courts, our courts have now confirmed that it is not necessarily unfair to retrench employees because you are seeking to change their terms and conditions of employment. It's not per se unfair. Mm. So you can try and implement different terms and conditions of employment that are intended just to make sure that your business operates more efficiently and more profitably, provided that the real reason you are retrenching is not because employees have refused to agree to those changes, but because you have a real operational need to achieve those changes and that that operational need is compelling and is properly justifiable. So our law is actually quite well developed from an employer's perspective in terms of allowing you to structure your business in a way that you genuinely need it to be structured. Um, but at the same time, it tries to protect employees by making sure that these are not just nice-to-haves. It's not just something you're trying to force the employees to agree to because it would be nicer for you. You really do have to show a compelling operational need based on which you're trying to implement those changes. Now, just um, in conclusion, Audrey, I just want to ask you um, any legislation out there that jumps out uh, specifically that the C-suite, that executives, businesses, entrepreneurs uh, need to watch quite closely going forward? So um, the probably the most important one is there's a new bill that proposes to introduce some amendments to the Employment Equity Act. Um, it was introduced by the Minister of Labor on the 21st of July last year. It's currently still un under consideration by the National Assembly, so quite a long way still from um, coming into effect. But particularly for uh, businesses and employers that want to do business with the state, it introduces some um, some interesting and important provisions in that there is, a, there is an existing section in the Employment Equity Act which deals with uh, state contracts and which says that in order to conclude an agreement with any organ of state, 
uh, you have to present a certificate of compliance with the Employment Equity Act. Now, that section, although it is already in the Employment Equity Act, has never actually uh, come into effect, and it's never actually been promulgated, and this bill seeks to actually bring that section into effect. The second important aspect of the amendments to the, the proposed amendments to the Employment Equity Act in terms of this bill is that it will empower the Minister of Labour to establish certain sectors or identify certain sectors and then um, for the purposes of ensuring equitable representation of suitably qualified people from designated groups at all occupational levels, it enables the Minister to set numerical targets for those sectors that have been identified. And the effect of this would be that in the employment equity plan that employers in those sectors have to produce, they must ensure that they are complying with those numerical targets that have been set by the uh, Minister of Labour. So this is quite a, a different approach to that which has previously always applied in our Employment Equity Act where uh, quotas were not used. Uh, employers had to come up with their own numerical goals and targets in employment equity plans, but there were no quotas. And this um, provision that would enable the Minister of Labour to actually set um, targets, numerical targets for certain sectors is akin to having a quota in that sector. So that's quite an um, important amendment if it does come into effect. And in relation to the certificate of compliance that I spoke about previously, that you would have to be able to produce to be able to do business with the state, um, that certificate of compliance must also confirm that you have complied with whatever numerical targets are set for that particular sector. And it's quite a, a tricky one because it remains to be seen how the Minister of Labour would come up with those numerical targets and whether proper consideration would be given to uh, the availability of suitably qualified individuals from designated groups in that particular sector. And it might become very challenging for employers in those sectors to meet the numerical targets if there just aren't suitably skilled individuals to enable the employer to do that. Pretty big fines, though, also being proposed. Yeah, so the fines, actually, in terms of the act itself, the fines remain the same. But uh, what what will change in terms of uh, the, the problems with compliance is that you can now be fined for not meeting these sectoral targets. Um, so that that will be a significant consequence for employers as well. And, and the fines, they, so in other words, they're still, I think it was 2 to 10% or so? Yes, 2, two to 10% of your turnover. I see, okay. So this is certainly, um, you know, obviously something to watch very closely. Um, on the whole, I mean, transformation, etc. If it, if it's done um, strategically and properly, you know, has that benefit, the broader economic uplift benefit. But I think we just need more details, um, and it certainly is something of concern as well in light of the sanction uh, that are being proposed that are um, obviously broader because they apply to to broader implementation um, expectations from the minister. So, um, Audrey, thanks very much for highlighting these key issues and updating us on the current state of strikes and protest action. Really been great chatting to you. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you.